Good morning, everybody. Hey, thanks for being here. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. Yeah, so we've already referenced the time change here this morning, but I wonder if there's anybody else that is like me, that you've got that moment of uncertainty on the Saturday night before the time change, because I don't actually use an alarm clock, like the old school alarm clock. I use this guy right here. And so you're like me in the sense that you're like, well, I know that I think the phones are supposed to automatically change. Like the phone knows, the phone knows that we're supposed to change, but I'm not sure that I want to trust that the phone knows. So should I go ahead and just change the time an hour back now? And that way, if the phone knows, maybe it's going to change it back two hours. You know what I'm saying? Anybody ever have that internal discussion? All right, three of you. Awesome. Well, anyway, I'm here, we're here, you're here, the band is here, and everything is uh, lovely so far this morning, so we're very thankful for that. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're kicking off our series here this week called Stories Jesus Told. We all love a good story. I don't know if you got those friends that when they come over for a dinner party or those certain members of your family uh, or those people at your work where you love when they tell a story because they're good, they're descriptive and it works. And if they say, dude, I got a crazy story for you, you're all ears, right? But then maybe there's some other people that you know and you don't necessarily love when they tell a story, right? Any of those people point to them if they're in the room right now. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> but it's like, oh, they don't get to the point and it's, they don't quite remember it right. And then the story police have to come in and correct them on the story. You know what I mean? The delivery's sloppy and like, ugh. Well, I had something happen to me uh, not too long ago that I just want to share to highlight my <laughs> weakness in one point. Well, I was at a little place called the Dave and Busters. Okay, you've been to the Dave and Busters. You've been to the Dave and Busters when you have your kids with you. Okay, so you know the frustration that I'm about ready to enter into. Because not only do you pay a whole lot of money for that little card that goes super quick, right? But that would be fine in itself, but then they give you all those stupid tickets. Right? And like, you get on a certain game and there's like 150 tickets, which sounds really good, but then these kids come with their massive stack of tickets that you've already spent a lot of money for that little card to have them play the games, but now you've got to go through the whole second process of the night, which is going to the little redemption center where they have to either weigh or count out all these annoying tickets, and it is just like the hardest decision in the world, for my kids anyway, to figure out what to do with their, you know, 75 cents of credit, you know, that they've got from these tickets that we've spent all this money on, right? So we were there, and it was reaching that elevation point. Maybe some of you parents have been there, where I had been there long enough, and all the, all the, all the, all the lights and all the games going off and like all the people, it was all starting to go in slow motion. I was done for the night, you know what I'm saying? And the kids are still in the indecision stage about do I get, you know, this little piece of candy? I'm like, I'll buy you a whole bag of that candy at the store. But it was getting to that point and it was ratcheting up and I'm just, I'm just at my wits end. So finally I lean over to my daughter, Madison, who's eight years old and like just standing there at the counter, indecision, and I grab her arm like hard. Like a signal was being sent with the grab. You know what I'm saying, parents? So I grab her arm and I lean down her ear. I'm like, we are leaving right now. Follow me. And if you don't come with me, you're going to be in deep trouble. Don't say a word. We're leaving now. And she slowly turns up at me and I realize, that's not my daughter. (laughs) 
So now I've got the violent death grip leaning down, looking like about the creepiest dude that ever stepped foot into Dave and Buster's. And her dad is right next to her. And Madison is standing right there. And so I'm like, oh, hi, I'm sorry. You're not who I thought you were. Oh, hello, sir. Yes, I'm leaving now. Hey, Madison, are you ready to go? Okay. Here's $20. Get whatever you want. Let's exit stage left. I have nothing to do with Northwest Community Church in Cary, North Carolina, by the way. Uh, and so just forget this all happened and don't kill me. True story. But why did I tell you that? Well, I want to give you an illustration of a story. And, you know, maybe that resonates with somebody here. Maybe you've been to Dave and Buster's. Maybe you've experienced that frustration. Maybe you've gotten angry with your kids. Maybe you've said something to them that you didn't want to say. Maybe you thought it was them and it really wasn't them. And you've been in an awkward situation. But that's what stories do. Stories draw you in so that you can connect and resonate with the emotion of it, with the situation, with the setting, with the scene. And Jesus was a masterful storyteller. And as we talk about each of these parables for these seven weeks that we're going to be in here, you'll see with each one that he chose, it was a certain scene. It was a certain setting. He wanted to invoke certain emotions and feelings in his audience so that he could bring them to a point of decision. Every parable that Jesus told ended with a point of decision. But he wanted to draw them into a story which may or may not have been necessarily true and factual. But it was for a very specific purpose. And Jesus, as a rabbi, employed this method that many of the Hebrew rabbis used in learning. It wasn't just, we want to teach you by giving you information so that you could regurgitate it to us. They wanted to tell them these parables and these anecdotes. The Hebrew word for parable is mishal. And it's a very interesting word because it means basically a shadow. So in other words, we're, we're going to tell you this to give you a shadow, a glimpse of God and this truth. God is very complex. And in, in the Hebrews' mind, they wanted to explain these complex, difficult things to the common man. So they wanted to tell them a story that would essentially give them handles so that they could begin to grasp and carry these deep truths. So this morning, we're going to be diving into the parable of the Good Samaritan here in Matthew chapter 10. And this is perhaps one of the most well-known parables that we've got in all of Scripture. Even if people aren't Christians and maybe have never even opened up the Bible, undoubtedly they've heard of a Good Samaritan and they could probably recount most of the story to you. It's a phrase that's been kind of hijacked. Uh, how many times have you been watching the news and they say something like, well, in the winter snowstorm, Good Samaritans abounded. You know, it's kind of like one of those phrases that's just carried along and lasted 2,000 years. Well, in, uh, in all of God's sovereignty uh, and cruel irony, perhaps, we had a situation amongst our Northwest Community Church staff uh, over the last week and a half that had to do with being a Good Samaritan. You remember that day when we had, you know, like all the snow and ice or that day? Yeah, right. Those several days where we had all the snow and ice and all of that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, it was one day in particular where we came to the office and we were all talking, and it appears that somebody, some poor soul, had gone off the side of the road right close to the church office in a ditch, and two separate staff members, full-time people, had had the opportunity shortly after he was in the ditch and were coming by and approached the scene. 
One of our staff members rolled down the window, pulled over, wanted to chat with him, make sure he was okay, make sure he didn't need anything. Can I call uh, somebody for you? Do you need a ride? Are you okay? And the other one, right on by. Would you like to take a guess? Who did, who did what? <laughs> I won't, I'll just leave that to your imagination. But when we were just poking fun at him, he said, hey, you know what? I could tell he was fine and uh, he was stupid. He was going too fast. So I'm just gonna let him deal with this problem. So I'll leave that up to conjecture who was who, but true story. Good Samaritan, opportunity this week. Some of you guys are looking around some of our different stuff. But anyway, we're going to be diving in here and um, let's just go ahead and, uh, and talk a little bit about um, Jesus and who he was and, and in this situation. He was about halfway through his ministry about, and uh, as typical, there's people gathered around and uh, we come across this scene. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's just stop right there. You need to understand that this teacher that they're talking about is Jesus, right? And this lawyer that they're talking about is a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was a group of people uh, around the time of Jesus that not only really took literally the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, but they also, the written law, also took very seriously the oral law. And what the oral law is, all the different rabbis, all the different teachers, what their interpretation and explanation of the written law was. They memorized all those things. They compared different ideas. They wanted to qualify and quantify exactly the interpretation and the steps they needed to take in order to effectively do the written law. So the Pharisees, that's what they did all day long. It's just talked about it. Well, I follow this rabbi. I follow that one. I follow that one. I've got this big, long laundry list of things that this rabbi says I need to do in order to effectively do those things. So that's their world. That's what they lived in. So here in this scene, this Pharisee is wanting to know, Jesus, what do you say about this? He's essentially recognizing his authority as a rabbi and saying, I want to know how that compares to everything else I've heard. And I, I'm just curious, what do you say I need to do to inherit eternal life? Keep on reading in the passage. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In typical fashion, in the Hebrew way of learning, Jesus answers a question with a question. It's not, I'm just going to give you the information. It's, I'm going to ask you a question to help you process it and really come to your conclusions. And it says this, verse 27, he, that is the Pharisee, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Some of you remember that first part of it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's from Deuteronomy chapter six, right? That's the thing that they recited twice a day, at least, and that's the thing that all the kids memorized, and the Lord our God, he is one. This is what we need to do. We need to love God, and that is the correct answer. Notice the Pharisee also said, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's echoing what Jesus said. Remember, you've heard it said this. Well, I say, add this to it. It is equal unto the first part of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself is equal to love the Lord your God. So notice he references that. 
That's in the Old Testament as well in Leviticus. But he brings that to the table. Love God, love people. Do that and you'll live. We good? We good. He, he answered correctly. But notice the parenthetical reference that we see here in verse 29. It says, but he, that is the Pharisee, desiring to justify himself. I want you to underline that in your copy of scripture. Highlight that on your tablet or however you can. We get insight into what this guy was thinking. Desiring to justify himself. He said, and who is my neighbor? You can almost kind of hear the snarkiness, kind of the sarcasm. Because here's this Pharisee, again, who lives his whole life by the letter of the law, by what everybody else says. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, got it. I go to the temple, I give the money, I worship, I do the sacrifices, everything else that's listed out and quantified. I'm good. But this whole element of loving your neighbor as yourself yeah, uh, I'm desiring to make myself look good and to justify. Um, can you help me with that? Because that's too hard to define. Who is my neighbor? It's a legitimate question. You need to understand a little bit in the Jewish way of thinking, it's almost like concentric circles as far as their value. At the very center, in the middle, it was their immediate family. It's their sons, their daughters, their mother, their father, their spouses. Right here, here's who I value. One circle outside of that was their extended family. Aunts, uncles, grandparents. And one circle outside of that was other people that were part of the nation of Israel. Other Jewish people. And that's as far as the circle went. They're a very ethnocentric people. And this was a situation here in Jerusalem and surrounding areas where there started to be a whole lot of other nations and cultures coming in and infiltrating. They had a Roman occupation. There were Samaritans that were coming through their city all the time. There was philosophers and Epicureans coming in, lots of different ideas, lots of different nations, lots of different cultures. We're not comfortable with this. We're gonna stick with who we know. This is who we love and this is our world right here. And so clearly this Pharisee was saying, okay, well, this is my neighbor, people I'm close to, this is who it is. And so now Jesus is gonna open his eyes to something much different. So the way we've crafted the message this morning, if you're taking notes, is we're just basically gonna be talking about two concepts that we can learn from the good Samaritan. Okay, so let's just get on into the story here in, uh, in verse 30. So then Jesus replied, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now again, when we're talking about story. Here's Jesus telling a story of something that is very familiar to everybody listening. They know that road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles long. It drops 3,000 feet. I've been on that road. 
And I can tell you it is incredibly dangerous and treacherous. There's rocks, boulders, and caves everywhere. It was notorious. It was a notorious pass for being dangerous. There was gangs. There was robbers. There was people that would just lay in wait hiding. And if they saw you were walking by yourself, they were going to overtake you. And that's exactly what happened. This guy got jumped. He got beat down, stripped, half-naked, everything stolen and left on the side of the road for dead. The people who are hearing this, they're, they're getting into the story. They can understand. They're, they're excited to find out who the hero of this story is gonna be. Who's Jesus going to have as the hero? To their shock, the first two characters that walk by that should have been the logical heroes, completely, the scripture says in the Hebrew, turned aside and went as far away as possible and passed by this person who was in dire need. I want to talk to you for just a moment about the history of the priests and the Levites. These were the people that were at the center of the Jewish community. These were the spiritual leaders the Levites were ones that were sons of Levi, part of that tribe. They were given the honor of being able to work in the temple full time. Okay, they were given that role all throughout history. So they weren't given land and they weren't given the opportunity to work anywhere else. Their job was to work in the temple. Very similar to full time ministry people today, right? But these would be like the assistant pastors and the administrators and like the setup people and the Levites did a lot of different things. You know, they like ran the choir. So they were like, you know, Bill King would be a Levite in our contemporary version of this, right? Leading the band and set up people and like doing the sacrifices behind the scenes. Those were the Levites. But then you've got the priests the priests were like the senior pastor. They were the ones that were up front. They were in charge of everything. They were at the center of the community. They were the main moral teachers. And when you think about the heritage of both of these groups, all priests were part of the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. Priests were just from the line of Aaron. And if you know your Old Testament history, you'll remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, all the people were worshiping idols and were just doing all sorts of things that were blasphemous to God. And you remember that scene where Moses said, all right, who's on the Lord's side? And it says in scripture, all the sons of Aaron came together and were like, we're on the Lord's side. All right, guys, here's what I want you to do. Go around and get the people that started all this and bring them to justice. So they were... They were so beneficial in going out and redeeming and bringing those people to justice, sons of Aaron. So God said, from now on, you guys and your line, you're gonna be the ones that get the honor of being my spokesman for all the people. So here you've got this family history of like bravery and courage and spiritual leadership in the priests and in the Levites. And yet they were the ones that crossed the road and just kept on going. Well, why did they do that? Well, they might have tried to, again, play on words, justify themselves, just like the Pharisee did early on, right? They tried to justify themselves. And some of their reasoning could have been pretty legitimate. Maybe they thought, well, you know what? Uh, there's probably these thieves that are hiding right behind there. Maybe this whole thing's a trap. I don't want to go over there. I don't want to get robbed too. I want to you know, get as far away as possible. 
Certainly what could be playing into their minds is the fact that because they have temple priestly duties and because they take so seriously those first five books of the law, it says in Leviticus, one of the requirements for people working in the temple is that you need to be ceremonially clean. And it's very complicated and confusing to read through all of that, what that means. But essentially they had to do a bunch of different things that would make them holy and able to officiate at temple duties. And in Leviticus chapter 19, it talks about how any priest or any Levite that is within four cubits of a dead body or a carcass is ceremonially unclean. So just imagine in their minds, they're like, oh, oh, yikes, that looks pretty bad. Um, he's probably dead and I'm on my way to officiate. So I can't go over here because God needs me at the temple. I, I will make myself ceremonially unclean if I go over there and, and see if this person's dead or not. So I'm just going to play it safe and head over here. Think about the shame, perhaps, that they would have felt when they were ceremonially unclean. And when they get to the temple, it takes a week for them to get beyond that. All right? It's almost like, you know, it's almost like detention for the priests. All right? If they get close to a dead body. It's almost like they're suspended for a week. They can't even go inside the gate. They have to stay outside the gate. They have to spend money to buy an animal to sacrifice it to make them clean again. They're going to miss out on a week's worth of wages, the tithe and the food that they would get as part of their priestly duties to bring back to their family. I got to provide for my family. You could see all the justification that could take place in the name of holiness that could have been going through the priest and the Levites' minds. But the two things that we want to recognize here, number one, when we talk about the Good Samaritan and how he was different, point number one, he stepped into the mess. He ran towards the issue and the trouble. These guys stepped away, wanted to stay clean. He said, I don't care, I'm stepping into this situation. Let's keep on reading. Right down here in, uh, in, in verse 33, it says this, but, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he, that is the man who was beaten up, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He felt something which caused him to act. Now again, when you're thinking about this setting and this situation, you have to understand the the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And again, some of you have been around church for a while and you're like, okay, we know they didn't like each other. No, it goes way beyond that. It was a vile hatred that they had towards each other. And here's why. About 600 years earlier, the city of Jerusalem in Judea was sacked by Assyrians, invaded, terrorized. People were murdered. People were taken captive. Temples were burned down. Their city was completely destroyed by the Assyrians. And you remember in Nehemiah, his heartbreak was to go back and to rebuild the gates and to rebuild the city and everything. There was a remnant that went back, 35,000 or so, that went back. These Jews went back to rebuild. But what happened was some of the women... And some of the men fell in love with the Assyrians. And they began to intermarry 
with the very people that had come to terrorize. Literally, they were sleeping with the enemy. And so a modern example of that would be, you know, back in, you know, the, the early 40s, you're over there in Germany or in Poland and you're a Jewish family and your 20-year-old daughter comes home and she's like, I just met the most amazing guy. I mean, he's got these blue eyes, he's just so handsome and he's so chiseled and he's just incredible, he's kind and he's just so funny. This was a southern Jewish girl apparently. But he's just so amazing. Oh, wow, tell us about him. Well, I mean, he's a commander and he's got all these people working for him and they just, they respect him. They do whatever he says. Um, but he's just, he's just so sensitive and so romantic. And well, what does he do? Oh, he's a captain in the Nazi army. You mean those very same people that are hunting down all of our family and our tribe and putting them to death and murdering him. You're falling in love with one of them? How can that possibly be? That's exactly what was going on right here. So these are, the Samaritans are people that are still half Jewish. They didn't want to do away with that. They're still like, nope, we love Yahweh. We love the, you know, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And we still want to follow after and worship. We still want to be called Jewish. But yet we have intermarried with these Assyrians and we're bringing in all of these other religions and these cultures and these Babylonian gods. And we're bringing in all this stuff and we just want to morph it all together and be one big happy family. You can see why that was such a problem for the Jews. And so when Jesus mentioned that this was a Samaritan, that was almost like a curse word. As a matter of fact, Jesus was called a Samaritan and a devil by the Jews. That was like the worst thing that they could say. Are you sure you're not a Samaritan? And really one chapter before, in chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples went to a Samaritan village and they weren't welcome there. Nobody would give them a place to stay. And the disciples were so angry, they said, Jesus, why don't we call down fire right now to consume your enemies? That's how hated they were. But yet this Samaritan is the one who is the hero of the story. One other thing to bring up. Secular Historians talk about in between 6 and 9 AD, there was an abomination that happened. The Samaritans came into the temple of Jerusalem and they took dead human, dead bones and they spread them all over the courtyard. Right in the middle of the Passover, by night, so on this one high and holy day where people, hundreds of thousands, had come in to worship and the next day they show up and there's human bones spread all over, ruining their Passover, shutting everything down. Remember what we said about ceremonially unclean? That's what the Samaritans did. Jesus remembered that. He was probably six or seven or eight years old when all that took place. And he remembers the anger, the offense of his family and all the Jewish people of how could somebody be so cruel. And yet, the Samaritan turns out to be the hero. He stepped into the mess. He's the one that had compassion. Keep on reading in verse 34. He went to him and he bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
Second point that we just want to uh, understand here is the Samaritan lavished love without limits. Not only did he step into the mess, but he lavished love without limit. He wasn't concerned about the least required, the minimum requirements. He said, I'm going to go over and I'm going to go so far and so above what would be expected because I have compassion on him. You know, you think about it, the Samaritan had some risk involved too. Not just are there robbers still there, but especially him being in enemy territory. This is the territory of the Jews. If anybody were to walk up and see a Samaritan right there next to a half-naked, bleeding, robbed man, they would naturally assume that he's the one that did it. His reputation was on the line. But notice how what the Samaritan does is essentially weaving together what had been ravished in this man. The thieves robbed and beat him up. The Samaritan came in and healed him with oil and wine. The thieves stole his clothes. The Samaritan used his own clothes to bind up his wounds. The thieves abandoned and ignored him and left him for dead. The Samaritan came and rescued him and gave him life. The thieves took all away his money. The Samaritan used his own money to pay for him. You'll notice it says in the next verse, verse 35, the next day, the next day, So he stayed overnight with him. He wanted to make sure that he was going to live. The next day, it says in verse 35, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. Two denarii was enough for anywhere between four and eight weeks of paying for him to stay in this inn. Do you love that idea of lavishing Gifts of lavishing care and concern beyond limits. Far above what would ever be expected. So what's the point? Well, the conclusion in the application is where Jesus completely turns things upside down. You'll notice as you keep on reading, it says in verse 36, he says, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? That question is really important. You know why? Jesus does not answer the question that the Pharisee asked. That's where most people get this parable wrong. Because most people think like, oh, the good Samaritan. The answer is, you know, your neighbor is the person who's in need. That's what Jesus was ultimately saying. Wrong. I mean, that's certainly an application of it. You certainly see that. But notice Jesus didn't say, you know what this parable is about? The guy that was beat up. He's your neighbor. He doesn't say that at all. He says, which of these three people proved to be a neighbor? So not, oh, what should I do and to whom and which of these people is my neighbor? Remember all those circles? This was their frame of reference. That's it. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The one who proved to be the neighbor is the enemy who's somewhere way out here. The Samaritan was the neighbor because of who he was and how he acted. You know, as we look at this, there is someone who we've done something like this for. There is someone who we've lavished 
love on. There's, there is someone that we've given to until it hurts and gone above and beyond what should have been done. You know who it is? It's us. Maybe there's some here would kind of, who would go over the top for a friend, but it's hard to think that anybody here would go over the top like that for an enemy. It's just not done. But when we think about how we treat ourselves, people will go into debt, people will go bankrupt, people will move heaven and earth to not deny themselves what is needed. Jesus is upending the illustration by saying, you need to ask the question, who am I a neighbor to? Not who is my neighbor. Not out there, in here. So as we think about that and as we think about this illustration, what's keeping you from running to the mess? What's keeping you from offering love, lavishing love without limit? To close, I want to share with you an illustration that I came across that was just so convicting. A few years ago, I read this and did all the research on it to find out that it's all true and uh, read all the results. But anybody like that show that used to be on, I'm not sure if it's on anymore, but that show, What Would You Do? You know what I'm talking about? That show, What Would You Do? Where they uh, set up a situation and they have actors and actresses in there and then they videotape it to see how people are gonna respond to different situations, right? Well, this was a real live version of that a few years back at Princeton University that a couple of psychologists wanted to see what makes the human being show compassion. And so it was a, it was a test that they did involving people going into the ministry, seminary students, and what they did was they uh, got a big group of seminary students and they scheduled several of these um, classes of seminary students and they said, all right, half of you, we want you to prepare a talk on why you're going into the ministry and then we're gonna have you go across campus, right across the quad there and there's gonna be some undergrads waiting for you. You're gonna present that talk to them about why you're going into the ministry. Okay, they're doing it, they're prepared, they're ready. Another group of seminarians, they said, we want you to prepare a talk on the Good Samaritan, on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just short little 10 minute talk and you know, like just prepare that and do all your stuff and we're gonna go across campus and you're gonna present that to some undergrads. Okay, so they all came and they all prepared several different groups. What was amazing was these psychologists hired some actors, one actor, and he was kind of right in the middle of the quad, right in their path where it would be to be slumped over, to be coughing and moaning and obviously in pain, obviously in serious medical condition to see would these seminarians stop and help or would they go on their way? And what they projected was the ones who were, you know, studying the Good Samaritan, this is going to be so obvious. Of course, they're going to be the ones that help. The other ones, we'll see what happens. Well, they were completely wrong on all counts. It didn't make a difference if they were going to share about why they went to the ministry, if they were going to share about the Good Samaritan. The only thing that made a difference was with two different groups. With one group, they said, you know what, they're not going to be ready for us for a little while, but we might as well walk over there and get situated. We've got 15 or 20 minutes, so let's just go over there early. And to the other group, they said, oh, we better get over there. They're waiting for us right now. Let's go. And so of the ones that had time and thought that they had a few minutes, 63% of them stopped to help. Of the ones who thought that people would be waiting for them, 
only 10% stop to help. And the point that they were trying to make is this. With acts of compassion, when somebody is in need, it seemed from that test like the only determining factor was not what they knew, what, not what they had just studied, but how aware they were that this time would be had and would be well spent and there wasn't gonna be somebody else waiting for them so that they would be embarrassed and shameful for showing up late. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, good heavens. So it's not what we know. It's not even what we're convinced of and what we believe, but how hurried we are. How aware we are of what's going on around us versus how focused we are on what we think we need to do in order to be a good steward and to give a good presentation and to get a good grade. Literally, these guys stepped right over the person who was in dire need so that they could save their own face. So we think about it in that light. And man, that really resonates with me. Because I think about, man, if I just took the time or if I just opened my mind enough to be aware and said, okay, God, I want to be a good neighbor. I want to be the kind of person that this Samaritan was. I want to lavish love. I want to run towards the mess. But how often do I not even see it because I'm so focused on something else? I love this one quote by an author named Mark Buchanan who said the Pharisees had an ethic of avoidance, the lawyer, an ethic of avoidance. Jesus had an ethic of involvement. The Pharisees' question was not, how can I glorify God? It was, how can I avoid bringing disgrace to God? This degenerated into a concern, not with God, but with himself, with image, reputation, and procedure. They didn't ask, how can I make others clean? They asked, how can I keep myself from getting dirty? And I wonder how many of us have that same thought. I know for me, as I read this and percolated on this for the last couple of weeks, I want to be the kind of person that's not guarded. I want to be lavish. I don't want to be cautious. I want to go above and beyond just like he did. You remember we said every parable, every story that Jesus told ended with a decision that he was asking them to make. The very last words of Jesus in this parable, he said to the lawyer, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor. Don't ask who's worthy of it. Be that and let Jesus' light shine through you. Even as it were, to somebody who could be your worst enemy. What kind of love is this? It's not normal, it's not logical. It doesn't come naturally, that's for sure. But Jesus was telling us, if you open yourself up to me and the love that I've shown to you, the love that I've lavished upon you, according to scripture, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his children if you look to me and realize what I've done for you you can be a reflection of that even to the unthinkable situations so I don't know where that lands on you this morning but I'm praying that God through the power of his Holy Spirit will make you be that kind of neighbor let's pray together God we thank you for who you are Lord we thank you for recording this story for us and how powerful it is. 
And Lord, I just pray from the bottom of my heart that you would help us not to try and quantify and qualify and check boxes and ask who our neighbor is, but Lord, that we would look internally and that you would show us each how we can love you most effectively with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our soul, all of our mind. Lord, we're all guilty of loving ourselves, lavishing on ourselves, treating ourselves, looking out for ourselves. So Lord, I pray that we would be the neighbor that you talked about here. That we would be overflowing with generosity and anonymity. Doing whatever it takes, not caring who gets the credit for it. Thank you for that example, God. We love you. Let's lift your name higher, we pray. In your son's name.